Good morning, Grace Chapel. All the children, you can be dismissed right now. You're going to go to your classrooms. And we're going to hang out here together. Let's pray before we get started this morning. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the salvation that's ours, that leads us and brings us here, and the opportunity to worship you and you alone, no other reasons. Lord, it's wonderful that we can do this in the freedom that we do have in this country. And we pray for our country's leaders. We pray for those in authority over us at all the different levels, Lord, that uh, your wisdom would penetrate their hearts, that your truth would penetrate their hearts. Uh, And Lord, this morning we spend some time now in your precious word in Judges chapter 3, and we have that same prayer. Lord, penetrate our hearts with your truth, transform and change us more into the image of your Son and our Savior Jesus, and we pray it all uh, with the confidence that you will answer our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's recap last week for those of you who weren't here or you're like me and you can't remember last week. That's right. That's probably most of us, right? Yeah. So last week's message was from Judges chapter 1, and it was our introductory message to this whole series as we go through this quite amazing, remarkable book. But we did chapter 1, chapter 2, and the first six verses of chapter 3. And if you're in a small group or you grab the study guide that is on the back table there, you can go through this on your own or in a small group format and grow in it way more than we can deliver in a half hour or 45 minutes. God recounted last week how Israel failed. Uh, They failed to drive out the idols that were obviously in the land and the inhabitants that were there serving those idols, a land that God gave to them free. Like, you look out on the map, that was free, it's yours, I'm giving it to you, you're my people, just move those people along and all the idols and it's yours. And that failure as we see in the book of Judges, comes with devastating consequences. And it's the same in our own lives as we're going to see this over and over and over again. But this introduction we we looked at last week, it's an introduction to 400 years of time. That's the book of Judges. It's like at least 400 years long. It's it's a long period of time. And it highlights a dramatic tension Maybe you feel it in your own life, but there's this dramatic tension between God's holy commands, drive out the inhabitants. There's no option here. You drive them out. That's God's holy command. And His loving, faithful promises, the land is yours. There's this tension because God demands obedience, right? And all God's people said, yes, yes, He demands obedience. Yet he's also promised to save his people and to give his people, Israel, land. So there's this tension because there always seems to be this disobedience on the part of the people. Now, is that like us today? And all God's people said, yeah, yeah. Much quieter, yes. And as a result of this tension, the children of Israel go into these cyclical declines that we're going to see over and over and over again in this book. And the decline is caused specifically by their worship 
of other gods who they were told to clear out and they didn't? Is your life cluttered with things it shouldn't be? So we find God is continually disciplining them for their sin, but here's the thing, here's the tension, but He delivers them every time. And it boggles my imagination until I stop and go, oh, He does that for me too. And He saves them from the ultimate peril of sin's consequences. He never casts them off but continues graciously and mercifully to work for their good according to the riches in heaven. You, don't you deal with this tension in your life? Don't you? I mean, let's be honest. We're worshiping God here together. God, I don't deserve this. Have you ever said that? Or, or are you like, no, I deserve this. No. Have you ever said that? God, I don't deserve this, any of it. But there you are, over and over again, always sustaining me, forgiving me, blessing me. It's, it's, I can't, I don't know why. Why, God? And in chapter 3, where, we're, where we've gotten to now, in verse 7, we're given a statement. It's really important to let this sink in, because it defines the whole chapter. And and as a matter of fact, it kind of defines the rest of the book. As we've already seen in chapters 1 and 2, what God calls evil is a twofold decision on your part and my part and the nation of Israel's part. It's to forget the Lord and to serve many lords or other gods. That's what they did then. That's what you and I are tempted to do today. Verse 7, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served Baals and the Astra. And Astra is a a female fertility goddess. You can Google her on and find out all about that nasty religion, and the Baals are the lesser gods. It's, Baal is actually a, is a Canaanite word for, for um, Lord, a Lord. God places a spiritual significance on remembering and forgetting in the Bible. We're going to see this over and over, not only in Judges, but in the Bible and in our lives. When, when people in the Old Testament, and you see it all the time, they, they, they call out to God, like in Psalm 25, verse 6, and they say, remember, God, remember your great mercy and your love. Or in Isaiah 66, 9, they say, don't remember our sins. <laughs> they did not actually believe that God could literally forget They didn't believe that God could forget what he is like. Oh, God, remember your mercy? Oh, yeah, I I, I forgot about my mercy. Yeah, thanks for reminding me. Uh, They they didn't believe that God could actually forget what some of us as humans have done. When we ask God to remember his great mercy and his faithfulness and his love, aren't we like the psalmist poetically asking God 
to not act, to act according to what he's always consistently done, that his character is always consistent. Have you noticed that about God? He's always faithful. He's always good. He's always there. He always walks with you. He's consistent. We're asking God, keep acting according to the way you always have, and I remember it, and I'm looking forward to it. When we ask God not to remember our sins, we're asking God to not act according to what He clearly knows we've done. <laughs> so in Judges, when we see phrases, and we're going to see it over and over again, like the, Israel's, the Israelites forgot God, it's the same thing as saying that they no longer were controlled by what they already knew about God. Let's put it another way for us today. You and I can forget God. Do you believe that? We can forget God. Now, we might know who God is, and you might know what God wants, but that knowledge is not real to you in everyday interactions with other people in life. Um, those things you really do know don't come out in your actions. Are you following along with, with me? You know God is holy. How many of us know that? Okay, yeah, we know God is holy. We know that God wants us to be, say it, holy, yeah. But you go off on the poor waitress who gets your order wrong. You forgot God. You respond to someone you love with a quick, cutting remark. You forgot God. You literally forgot God. We may all acknowledge intellectually that something is true. God loves me. Do you know that? Do you acknowledge that? We might even show up for worship together on a Sunday morning. Oh, look, we have. To tell God that that is true. You love me, and that's why I'm here. Uh, a mighty fortress is our God. But in our heart of hearts, there are times and there are days when it might not grab us, penetrate our heart, or control us. So, so during the average week, there can be times when you and I are not all that different from those who really don't know anything about God. And we can act, or at least someone watching us could determine, you've forgotten God. Because you say you go to church, and you say you love God, and you say you're a Christian, but what you just did, what you just said... So the reason that the Israelites, like a lot of us, continually needed revival almost every other chapter going through the book of Judges, they needed this wake-up call, was because God's truth that they knew, they hadn't forgotten those truths. They knew those truths, which were once vibrant and alive and real in their hearts, eventually kind of faded away and became unreal. One commentator compared our hearts to a bucket of water 
on a freezing day. And by the way, those days are coming. News, weather alert. Our hearts will eventually freeze over like that bucket of water unless we are regularly smashing the ice that's forming on the top of the bucket. We know the truth about God that that He is good, but we don't taste and see that God is good. And the psalmist puts this so beautifully for us in Psalm 34, verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You've got to do this. That requires an action. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the one who takes shelter in Him. So other things, idols, you know what they are, what they can be in your life, become more real to our hearts because they're so in our face. They're tangible. We can sometimes touch some of them. And they're all around us in the here and now. And we serve them instead. And we take shelter in them instead. We taste and see them, not God. Dumb, yet so true. So how do you reverse heart forgetting that the Israelites are going through here over and over again? In other words, how do you and I remember How do we live a life of remembrance? Well, Peter hits it right between the eyes in his second epistle, uh, 2 Peter 1, 5 to 8, and he urges Christians, you and I, to grow in our character. And you're like, oh, Peter, I don't want to hear this today. This is what Peter says, all right? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You're like, but I can't change. I am what I am. (laughs) Okay, Popeye, but... You've already forgotten if you said you can't change. You've already forgotten. And by the way, as you saw last week, it's not correct to say, I can't change. What you're saying is, I won't change. Verse 5, for this very reason, Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with, if you really know God, self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in what? What does he say? In the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's one thing to know about Him. It's another thing to know Him and to live in His presence like Him. So what if you don't? Well, Peter does not go on to say, well, if you don't do this, the problem is you're not trying hard enough. Come on, let's get it together, people. we got to try harder. Let's all pray that we try harder. He, no, it's not what Peter says. Here's what Peter does say in verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities, you're you're nearsighted and and you're blind. And look at the words he uses, hearkening back to the days of Israel and Judges, having forgotten, having forgotten that he was cleansed 
from his former sins. You've forgotten who you are. Therefore, I intend, Peter says, I intend, as long as I have breath and I'm alive, I intend to always remind you of these qualities. So every message, you're going to hear this. Though you know them, I know you know them, and are established in the truth that you have. Peter is saying that if the forgiveness and the salvation that's been given to us through Jesus Christ's death on the cross, if that is real to you, you will live it out in your character and your daily life. And Peter acknowledges that we need to be reminded about what we already know. We need these truths to work in our heart as well as being understood in our head. It's the same problem with the Israelites. It's the same problem we have today. Even those of us who believe in Jesus Christ and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God Himself, we need to be reminded how often? Often. And how does God bring about revival? Let's get back to Judges. Judges chapter 3, verse 7, we saw what the Israelites were doing, and it wasn't good. Forgetting the Lord and worshiping idols. Just took one generation. That's all it takes. Now, in verse 8, we see what God is doing. His anger burned against Israel. You don't want that. Okay, this is not a good thing. So he sends trouble. I got I to wake these people up. They're not getting it. I've given them everything, land, blessing, and they're forgetting me, acting like they're forgetting me. And he sold them. Wow his own kids. He sold them into the hand of a guy with a really long name who is the king of Mesopotamia. Just do the syllables and you'll probably get it wrong. The people, God sold them into his hand, this king. The people had already sold themselves into, into the hands of lesser gods. So God's like, let them save you then. Let's see how this works out. You need to experience this, people. How do you remember me now? And you know, even in judging, and it's going to be, it's going to get worse and worse as you go through the book, these cycles also are a spiral down. Even in judging his children, God is acting kindly. You're like, what? Didn't you, don't you, discipline your children out of love? Because you never look at that when you're the child. But as a parent, isn't that the point? God is acting kindly. If he had not brought about this difficulty, and in their case, this suffering, it's highly unlikely, it's very doubtful that the people would have seen their true position, where they had placed themselves. They would not have seen how spiritually enslaved they were to these other gods and what a horrible end judgment they were actually facing. They needed this wake-up call. They, they needed this taste of judgment. And it allowed them to experience physical enslavement to another country in order to see their spiritual enslavement to gods they had left in their country. We have to see our sin. 
When you think back to the day, those of you who've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, when you think back to that time period when God opened your eyes to that truth, what was one of the things He had to open your eyes to? Your sin. We have to see our sin for what it really is before we can ever see the need of a Savior. I've talked to people who said, I don't need a Savior. What does that tell me? They're not seeing their sin. And God still does this for you and I in the family of God. It's in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty-two. 32. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. Why? So that we may not be condemned along with the world. He's always bringing us back. So when you are struggling under a physical oppression that you brought about, <laughs> let's be clear here, what do you do? You finally cry out. And understand there are plenty of physical oppressors that are just the course of you and I living in this sinful world, and we didn't bring it on. Perfect example, greatest model of that is Jesus. Physical oppression from every side because He was righteous. <laughs> So there's that, too. We're not talking about that. We're talking about something that you, that God is trying to alert you to in your own life. And here, as you read the text, it appears to take eight years. And you're like, what? I know people who've gone decades with a particular sin in their life, and they still are not willing to fess up and repent. This took eight years. Verse 9, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord after eight years, the Lord, what does he do? It didn't take eight years. Boom. Okay, finally. He raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Do you remember Joshua and Caleb? Those of you who know your Bible stories, I mean, these are two true heroes of God from the past, Joshua and Caleb. And Caleb was Othniel's uncle, so he comes from this solid family. And note the only thing the people contribute to the rescue is crying out to God. There's nothing else they had to do in this case, at this point. And that took eight years. The implication is that they reversed their allegiance to these other gods, and they turned away from the idols, and they turned back to the Lord their God. They repented. It's a huge word huge concept in the book of Judges and in the Bible and in your and my life. Repentance is crucial for any renewal, for any re restoration. So you ask yourself when things happen, at least I do, I say, so why has this trouble come? Are there any flaws in me that God might be using this trouble to point out. Because we like to point our figure at other people, right? You're the cause of my trouble. <laughs> well, it might not be the case. And that's the right response to any obstacle in life, to see how God's hand is working behind it and through it. It's like David prays in the psalm, Lord, search me, O God, and see if there's any wicked way in my heart so that I can repent of it and get right. 
to look honestly at ourselves and then to cry out to the Lord for revival. And that's a positive way to look at this episode, and I think it's probably correct in this particular cycle that Israel's going through at the time. But when you look into some of the future troubles that are coming the way of that nation that are still going to happen in the book of Judges, you may well wonder if it really is true repentance on the part of everyone. Or was it, ah, just get me out of this trouble. Have you ever, do you think you've ever prayed like that? Something's happened. You caused it. God, if you can just make it go away. Please, I promise I'll never do it again. If you would just make it right. Because none of you have ever prayed. This is just me. It's kind of self-serving. It's kind of not completely God-honoring. Please just make it go away. Well, God sent the trouble, and upon the repentance, God sends spiritual leadership. And it's this guy, Othniel, who he chooses, this, this disciple, this, this really true disciple of God who you're introduced to back in chapter 1, verse 13. He's the kind of leader you would expect God to choose for his people. And in this first cycle of, of, of the book of Judges, uh, it, it, this, is, this cycle is ideal. Can I get the next... Uh, do we have uh, the cycle picture? Is it? Oh, it is? Oh, it's not, not showing. I, I got Othniel up there. Okay, cool. Okay, there it is. Yes. So you see Othniel? That's weird. Anyway, so rebellion happens a lot. Then there's oppression. So you got this king with a really long name, a cry for help after eight years, and then deliverance through Othniel. And you're going to see this in, in this chapter of Judges 3, it's the most perfect one of this cycle, and you see various parts of it as we go through the rest of the book. And um, Along with the trouble, along with the trouble and the spiritual leadership, God sends His Spirit in this deliverance. It's in verse 10, and the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, that's Othniel, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave him, the king with the long name, into his hand. Took care of it. It's interesting to note here, there's a big, significant difference between Old Testament revivals, like we're going to go over here uh, in Judges, and the New Testament revivals we see for the church in the book of Acts. Here God sends his spirit to who? Othniel. One guy. Interesting. In Acts, God sends his spirit to who? The entire church. Every last one of us who calls on Jesus Christ as our Savior. Note to self, each one of us in this building who declares Jesus Christ as our Savior has been empowered by God to be the deliverer of the good news to enslaved people. Every one of us. We have all we really need. Verse 11, and the land had peace for 40 years. 40, that'd be like, for us, that'd be like since 1980, we've had peace. And now it's changed. No. This peace is from physical oppression. But it's also peace from the self-inflicted spiritual oppression that comes from serving anything other than God other idols. 
that caused the physical oppression in the first place. So then we read that Othniel dies because he's human, right? He's the deliverer, he's the savior, but he's flawed in that he's going to die, and he does. And God's influence through Othniel is removed. Forty years of peace ends just one verse later with verse 12, and the people of Israel, again, and you're like, (laughs) are you serious? Like, just wipe them out. I mean, just take, send in the flood, build an ark for the few who really love you. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Forty years. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab. I like his. He's got a short name. I like him. Against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And you'll probably find yourself saying multiple times throughout the book of Judges, come on, you guys. Like, what's the matter? Like, what's, what are you not seeing? Do you guys have history books? And you can go back, like in school, you're like, boy, those people were really dumb. We need to be smart. Yahweh's response to Israel's return to evil is to strengthen a king named Eglon, the king of Moab, who lives right next door. So, Peter, are you telling me that God could use my neighbor to… You're reading too much into the text. But he's using Moabites. He's using Moabites as his agents of discipline on his beloved children, which is remarkable because they were relatives of the Israelites. And they lived in the country next door. They were relatives. They were descended through Abraham's nephew Lot. It's back in Genesis chapter 19. You can read it. And when Israel was was being delivered by God out of Egypt, and they spent the 40 years in the wilderness, and they came through into the promised land, they came through Moab, and Moab oppressed them, opposed them, caused them to sin greatly, and thousands of Israelites died. It's in Numbers 22 and 24. Yet Yahweh forbid the Israelites to go into their land and encroach on Moabite territory because Yahweh himself had allotted it to Moab back in Deuteronomy chapter 2. He said, don't touch them. Leave them alone. Yeah, they're mean. They're cruel. Leave them alone. But what does God do now? He brings Moab into the land allotted to the Israelites because Israel had violated his will with their evil actions. And so Eglon makes an alliance with some other nations uh, against Israel, and he takes possession of one of the cities in their territory called the City of Palms, which most believe to be the city of Jericho. The irony here, do you see the irony? This is the place This is the first victory for Israel when they came into the promised land where God convincingly gave his obedient children at the time their first major victory over the enemy. Now it's the place where God gives their enemy victory over his now disobedient children. And the subjugation lasts for 18 years. Before it was eight, now it's 18. Hard-headed people just like you and I. So what do you think happens next? Opposition comes. All God's people said, the people cry out. Yeah, you got it. You're seeing the cycle. This is going to be a really easy study. It's going to be heart convicting, but 
easy to intellectually uh, perceive. And just as you guessed, the people respond to God sending trouble by crying out in verse 15, and the Lord, when he heard that cry, he raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. And then he's, there's this little, the narrator puts in this little aside, he's a left-handed man. It's like, how many of you are left-handed? Okay, three. Okay, no, four. four. Yeah, how many of you are right-handed? Everybody, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, never mind. You're left-handed because God wants to teach you something. That's what he's doing. Just, just. God swears by his right hand. God has pleasures by his right hand. God's chosen one, Jesus Christ, sits at his right hand. So what's the deal here? What's the, what's the big deal? Most people in the day were right-handed. The right hand was a symbol of power. It was a symbol of ability. Most warriors fought with their sword in their right hand. They were trained to fight right-handed. The name Benjamin of the tribe that Ehud is means sons of the right hand, right-handed. However, we're going to see that God's choice of this man, Ehud, being left-handed plays to an advantage for him because God sees things that we don't see. Othniel was your typical leader type, warrior from a faithful family line, from the tribe of Judah, the ruling tribe. Ehud is a surprising choice. He really is. Nobody would follow this guy if God didn't pick him. He's God's choice. He may be left-handed, but he's God's right man. So he sent with the tribute money on behalf of the, the, the nation to Eglon, who's hanging out in uh, what should be Israel's city. And before he goes, the text says he makes an 18-inch double-edged sword. It's like, why is he making an 18-inch double-edged sword? I mean, I can sort of think, oh, so he's going to do some mischief with this sword. Oh, and he says that he hides it under his clothing on his right thigh because he's left-handed, but he's going to hide it under his clothing. Well, why not an eight-inch dagger? What's the deal with the 18 inches? I mean, wouldn't that be a lot easier? <laughs> can you imagine? I don't have anything. You know, it'd be like, well, we're going to find out. So he presents the tribute to Eglon, and we're told with another narrator aside, now Eglon was a very fat man. So you got the left-handed man, you got a very fat man, and you got an 18-inch sword starting to add up. Two interesting asides. So Ehud and his delegation leave. So you're thinking, what happened? But then as they get outside, Eglon, I mean, I mean um, Ehud sends them on ahead. He turns back with this message to the king in verse 19. I have a secret message for you, O king. And we all know what the message is, right? I want to introduce you to my little friend. <laughs> Come here closer. I want to whisper a secret in your ear. So is this king a buffoon? Yes. And that's how he's portrayed here, the, the Moabite king. He's being characterized as wealthy, obese, buffoon. And he has the room emptied. He sends the guards away. 
because you gotta. Some commentators at this point see that Ehud um, actually can't use his right hand, and it's physically obvious, which then makes him less of a security threat. Maybe. For sure, he's a schemer, and he plays to the king's pride, and the king bites. We read, Ehud approaches the king while he was sitting alone to deliver the message. Verse 21, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. The Hebrew text, if you have an NIV, you won't, it's interesting, they don't translate this next part. Just leave it out. I think they're trying to keep it PG. But if you have a, a better translation of this text, you, I'm just, yeah, just deal with it. The Hebrew text actually describes the disgusting results of this deep stab wound. And I won't go, we won't go into details. Ehud locks the doors and escapes, and the guards see that the doors are locked and smell the horrible odor, and they think that the king is inside there relieving himself. That's what the text says. So they wait outside patiently, because you're not going to disturb the king, and gives him time to get away. That's how the whole thing goes down. Verse 27, when he arrived, that's uh, Ehud, arrives back home, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, and they seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over, and they killed at that time about 10,000. That's a large number of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. Wow. So like double peace. See that? 40, then 80. God doesn't work. God doesn't always work through normal or obvious ways. He freed his people through an unexpected leader using very unusual tactics. And then just one verse later for the third judge, we won't spend any time here, you can do it in your study on your own in verse 31. And after him, there was a guy named Shamgar, the son of Anath, and he killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. That's what you, it's a metal-tipped metal -tipped spear that you moved and trained animals with. And he also saved Israel. That's quite a feat. Try it sometime. Now, here's the lesson for today. All of the judges, including Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar, who we saw today, all of the judges point us to Jesus Christ. That's the point. Unlike all the judges, Jesus did not use deception he did not need a human army like we're going to see next week with Deborah and Barak. He never used brutal force, selfish ambition. He never displayed any rashness or sexual weakness, Samson. In fact, Jesus was in every way and more as flawless as the first judge is presented to us, Othniel. 
And yet, like all the major judges after Othniel, Jesus was an outsider. It's interesting. Someone the world and certainly the religious rulers of the time could not believe that this was God's chosen ruler. This was God's rescuer for mankind. Jesus delivered us not through great triumph as the world sees triumph, but through a crushing defeat, he crushed death itself. In these historical narratives, God is showing you and I, the world and the world, that his eternal salvation will not come in any kind of Hollywood fashion. It will come from an unknown born in a manger. Through weakness, not what the world calls strength. Through defeat, not what the world calls victory. And through folly, not what the world calls wisdom. Today we look at Jesus Christ and we see, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.24, but to those of us who are called Jews, Greeks, doesn't matter who you are, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The dilemmas faced by the Israelites today that we saw in, in future days as we go through in these very, very dark days of judges is not without parallel to the days of the church in this century this year. The church is often at the mercy of the world. Uh, there's been an increased dependence in the church on secular business practices. There's been an increase in the church for a dependence on the methodologies that come with the social sciences. While at the same time, godliness genuine spirituality decreases, especially among the church's leaders. If we permit ourselves to be squeezed into the mold of the world, we should not be surprised to find ourselves held hostage by the world. God is under no obligation to those who bear His name in vain. God is under no obligation to those who claim to be His children but forget and act like Canaanites during the week. But aren't you amazed at how God our Father remains so sensitive to us? How He listens to the groaning of His children? how he waits to demonstrate his great power and amazing grace in freeing us from the tyranny of the evil that is all around us and even from our own foolishness and forgetfulness. And how often does he do that? Over and over again. God is very resourceful. Have you seen that? And he is even willing to rescue us and he sometimes does it through outside agents, those outside the church, those who are doing it for the wrong reasons, those who are evil. And he does it in spite of us. So together, let's watch history unfold around us. Let's watch the current events day to day 
with a very biblically critical eye and a lot of prayer. A lot of prayer. James 4, 8. Here's a plug for our ladies' Bible study on Tuesday morning starting at 10. In the morning, they're going through the book of James. But here's what James says towards the end in verse 8. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. That's a promise. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James is talking to the church. We will be amazed as we humble ourselves before God and as we watch His plans for this planet unfold. Rise with me. And let's together with one voice, one mind, and one heart proclaim His greatness and give Him praise that He is due. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we bow before You in preparation for expressing our worship, for Your grandeur, for Your holiness, for Your amazing grace through Your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that these historical narratives are not just history, they're not just interesting, but Lord, that they transform us more into the image of your Son and our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray.